0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. As a good student in a good Old Testament introduction class will be able to tell you, Genesis 1 borrows structures and symbols and maybe even vocabulary from Babylonian texts like Enuma Elish to paint its particular picture of creation. Likewise, Proverbs 8 casts world-making in terms of international wisdom traditions. And John 1 ap- appropriates Greek philosophical vocabularies to tell us of the Lagos, who becomes Sarx. In his recent book, God After Einstein, What's Really Going On in the Universe, John Hott presents some possibilities for God talk in light of three great immensities with which modern science concerns itself. The great spans of time, from the Big Bang to last week. The great spans of distance, that an expanding universe encompasses, and the great spans of complexity that emerge with life, with consciousness, and with everything that comes with them. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome Dr. Hot to talk about all that and more. Thank you for joining us.
1: We're happy to be here, Nathan.
0: Your book asks of Christians, and especially of theologians, what theological differences should arise as cosmological models undergo radical shifts, and in what ways do such altered theologies remain Christian? So to start with the first one, uh, the theological differences, what do you mean in this volume when you write about a world that is still coming into being, and what changes happen in Christian theology when we take
1: seriously the inherent becoming of the universe? Excellent question. I I want to start out uh, my answer to that question by pointing out that as far as I'm concerned the greatest scientific discovery in modern times and perhaps even uh, in general is that the universe that we live in is not standing still, it's not stationary, it's very old and it's still coming into being. And what that does is change the whole sense of who we are, of what the universe is, and what creation is, and ultimately of what God is. Because it implies that we live in an unfinished universe, implies that creation was not finished, was not completed in the beginning. And one of the things that implies is that the universe has never been perfected. And if it's never been perfected, it's always been imperfect. And if it's imperfect, that means that there is room in it for evil, for non good, uh, for non fulfillment. Uh, the, the universe is deficient in many ways. And what that means theologically for us Christians is that we can think anew why we have this notion of sin, why we have notions of expiation, why we have notions of redemption, and what all these mean. And to to, 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 to put it very succinctly, uh, what it means is we can't expect here and now the universe to be a perfect implementation of some divine plan. And what that implies is that for us, our life, has to be thought of differently from in the past. We're not here to expiate a sin. Perhaps we're here to contribute to the ongoing creation of the universe. And we can now think of God as one whose fundamental will, whose fundamental plan or design, if you will, if you want to use those archaic terms, is that the universe continued to grow, that it continued to become more. And that gives a stature to human life, a dignity to human life, which has not been brought out in religious documents until the Second Vatican Council. There in the document Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, for the first time we see in Catholic thought a change in the sense of what we should be doing with our lives. And you'll find there the the idea that what we should be doing with our lives is contributing to the growth of the earth, to care for the earth, to care for this world. Whereas I was trained, I went to seminary too for a while, I I dropped out before ordination, but I was trained to think that what I should be doing is detaching myself from the world. We thought of the world as arranged vertically and hierarchically as a ladder of levels, reaching from matter at the bottom, through life, through mind, and ultimately to God, and we thought of our lives as one of going through this hierarchy, ascending to God, detaching ourselves from matter, from the universe, as we go along. So the universe in that conception does not matter that much, except as a a set of uh, obstacles, almost, that we have to pass through in order to purify our souls, To be capable of pristine, pure communion with with God. So once we see the universe itself as still coming into being, it questions that whole static hierarchical understanding of the cosmos, and opens up the question, well then, what should we be doing with our lives? What are the implications religiously of the fact that the universe is 13.8 billion years old, as modern cosmology has determined quite precisely, and is apparently unfinished. For all we know, those 13.8 billion years might be the very dawn of the ongoing creation of the universe. All this, you see, changes our sense of what does it mean uh, to be a faithful Christian. And we're not only
0: talking about, uh, you know, grand spans of time, uh, you know, as you just now mentioned, uh, but you present a vision of creation uh, that is narrative, and inherently narrative. What does that predicate mean? I mean, how, do, how does it uh, stand distinct from merely temporal? How does it stand distinct from, you know, merely uh, successive? What does it mean for a universe to be
1: narrative? Well, that's a very good question, and, and a lot of uh, smart people still don't see it as narrative. The reason I see it as narrative goes back to discovery by Einstein and the implication of his general theory of relativity is that we have to see matter and gravity, which is a product of matter, which is say an aspect of matter, as inseparable from time, from the passage of time. Now, Einstein was the first scientist to integrate time fully into his understanding of nature, of matter, of gravity. Prior to Einstein, for the most part, people have, including scientists and theologians, have thought of time and space as kind of containers into which the Creator poured the content of creation. And time is thought of as a kind of tunnel through which things pass on their way to the future. But what Einstein did is, I know that doesn't work anymore. The geometry of the universe shows that we have to integrate time into the very marrow, the very essence of matter and nature. And if you do that, if you think about that, if you understand time, as I do, as a passage of moments, as an irreversible passage of moments, something that Einstein himself did not do immediately. Einstein thought of time simply as a geometric dimension of a space-time universe, and even thought that the sense that we have of the passage of time is an illusion, a psychological impression, that in fact, really, there is no such thing as the passage of time. And today, physicists like Carlo Rovelli and Julian Barber and others agree that time doesn't really exist. And interestingly, I found that in contemporary astrophysics, a lot of scientists deny that time is real. But Lee Smolin, who perhaps is in the minority of physicists today, uh, says something that I agree with, that the universe simply just does not make sense unless we see it as a passage from past through present to the future. Everything gets confused if we see it as simply timeless and see time simply as our own creation. So if you see matter as inseparable from time, what that does immediately is make the universe, the material universe, into a story of irreversible passage of irreversible moments from past to present to future. And there can be no stories. If you think about it, the whole idea of story doesn't make sense, unless time is somehow an irreversible passage, and that we can't put Humpty Dumpty together again. There's certain irreversibility about the universe that's actually built into the laws of thermodynamics. So it's not just relativity, but it's the laws of thermodynamics that teach us that the universe is an irreversible story. So if it's a story, Then, and here's the main point I want to make, is that like all stories, we should approach it with a certain disposition, a kind of narrative disposition, the kind of disposition we have when we start reading a novel or watching a play or watching a film. When you approach these narrative kinds of realities, you can't expect them to become fully intelligible immediately. You have to work, you have to wait, you have to be patient. If you're reading The Brothers Karamazov and you stop reading after chapter 15, you'll never know what the novel was about. You have to be patient. Patient is an epistemological uh, requirement for understanding a story. So if the universe is a story, like other stories, we can't consider ourselves to be in a position presently to state what it's about. We have to allow it to unfold into the future. And that opens up the future in a way that nothing else has done in modern science. Most modern science is oriented toward the past, toward uncovering the causal series of efficient causes that brought about B from A and C from A and B. Uh, no, what what the, the narrative disposition, as distinct from a geometric preoccupation, does it opens up the the future of the universe. It makes it ambiguous. It's not it's not certain, but it requires us. We really want to get in touch with what's going on in the universe, what's going on in the story. We have to be patient and not dogmatic. The sins against this way of thinking are in all sins of impatience. And in fact, all sin, uh, I would go so far as to say, after we realize that the universe is still coming into being, all sin is in some sense, the refusal to wait.
0: All right. and And just
1: Just to clarify a couple of things
0: real fast. I mean, so the position that you're advocating here stands against a position in which time is something like a geometric dimension uh upon which you know uh travel metaphorically speaking i assume backwards or forwards is possible this is this is more like a you know hegel's dictum that time
1: flies like an arrow yeah and it's 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 the way the world works it's it's the way the process of complexification works it's a one-way process and it experiments with a lot of different possibilities But there's no, as I say, there's no putting Humpty Dumpty together again. There's something irreversible about the laws of thermodynamics, the laws of entropy. These laws of thermodynamics tell us that entropy, which means the loss of usable energy, is constantly increasing in the universe, and the realm of usable energy is constantly running out. Fortunately, we have an immense universe. That's where the three immensities are so resourceful. We have lots and lots of space and lots and lots of time, and lots and lots of opportunities there for a drama to take place, a drama of complexification, a complexification process which we know has already left, uh, led to a universe that's alive, starting 3.8 billion years ago, brought about the story of life and then more recently starting in the pleistocene period the universe became even more conscious more alive more awakened so what what we have here i call it the specter of an awakening universe and that's my starting point for theology of nature uh today
0: all right I want to turn towards the Bible for a moment. And uh, anyone out there who's listened to me talk for a spell, and I've been podcasting since 2009, uh, knows that I have little patience for uh, excessively simple divisions between Hellenic and Hebraic, as if those two traditions come down to us in hermetically sealed containers rather than as an ongoing conversation that begins well before St. Paul and persists well into the Christian era in the texts of the Neoplatonic Greek philosophers. But I'm going to let you talk to our listeners about Greek and Abrahamic influences on Christian theology, and uh, I'll, I'll try to contain my
1: grumpy noises. <laughs> You're allowed to be grumpy. Uh, I, I think uh, I, I would say, and I think you understand, have the same understanding, that most human aspiration is a hybrid, a mixture of different myths, worldviews, philosophies, and hopes and that the, in the concrete religious mind of actual people, they don't really segregate or separate out the various strands of aspiration that are available, that have been made available by human history, including its mythologies, its religions, its philosophies, and its theologies. In a, in a very general way, i start out with the, the sense, I think it's correct, that the Greek or Hellenic component of our aspiration, is interested primarily in the transformation of the soul. And it's understandable that since Christianity is about transformation, it would be deeply influenced by and tempted by the Hellenic idea, which is already there when Christianity came into the world. Uh, It would be tempted to re-express its own aspirations in terms of the kind of ideal of aspiration that you find in Greek thought, in Greek mythology, and especially in Plato and in Neoplatonic forms of, uh, and Augustinian forms of of Christianity, that what we have to do is concentrate on becoming authentic. And that means we have to concentrate on the interior life and allow ourselves to be transformed so as to be adequate to the majesty and eternity and infinity of Divine goodness and beauty, and in a way, I want to appropriate that. You know, almost in the same way that Einsteinian thought doesn't do away with Newtonian physics, but transforms it. I have adopted a theology which I call theology of hope and anticipation, which we'll get into a little bit later, uh, in in which I want to. Uh, Completely agree with the need for personal transformation. But now, after Einstein, after our new sense of a cosmos, which is still coming into being, I see, or I'm tempted to see, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I see the fundamental transformation that's of interest to God is the transformation of the universe. And this transformation we now know started long before we humans. Endowed with immortal souls came along. The universe itself was undergoing a dramatic transformation, a dramatic awakening, starting in its first moments at the initial conditions and fundamental constants that were present at the time of the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. The universe was already, you might say, locked into a set of values that would sooner or later allow for the emergence of life. And what is so important about life? What makes life dramatic? Uh, This has been brought out especially by the philosopher Michael Polanyi. What differentiates life from non-life is that forms of life typically are arranged or enlivened by what you might call a logic of achievement all organisms try to achieve something, whether it's an amoeba looking for a food supply, or a prey trying to escape its predator, or a predator trying to catch up with its prey, or whether it's a college sophomore sitting in a library trying to read books that will help him figure out to him or her figure out the meaning of their lives. Life in general, is defined by this logic of achievement. <clears throat> well, what that means is that yes, life can be successful, but it also means, and this is true for the most part, that it can fail to achieve. All these strivings are met <clears throat> either with momentary success, but ultimately life itself is met with death. So there's, there's something tragic about the universe that comes in already with the appearance of life long before we humans came along. So the universe was dramatic explicitly with the emergence of life, but implicitly it was dramatic from the very beginning because the physics of the universe was oriented toward allowing for the emergence of life. And not every arrangement of the physical values would have let life into the cosmos. So this awakening process, this dramatically awakening process began long before uh, we humans came along. And I think that when we think about God, we have to think about what is the relation of God to this whole awakening universe? The universe itself, long before souls came along, is invited to undergo a process of transformation. And then when life became awakened into stages of sentience and awareness and eventually consciousness and then reflective self-consciousness, this dramatic logic of achievement, this striving for some something, for some goal, became the characteristic feature of this awakening universe. And why is that important? It's important for our whole understanding of where we're going to connect God to the universe. Typically in the past, we thought of God primarily as the creator uh, in principio, in the beginning, creatio originalis, original creation was the preoccupation of theologies of creation. But after Darwin and after Einstein, and after the sense we now have of a large awakening cosmos, which we know is explicitly taking place on our planet Earth, which is quite, but which is quite probably taking place elsewhere. But even if it's only taking place here on earth, it needed the complicity of this vast cosmos and maybe many, maybe multiverses, multiverses. Uh, The complicity of, of a plurality, a multiplicity of things had to be there in order for eventually the story to give rise to this awakening. And where does that place God in the picture? We think of God, I do anyway anymore, as that to which the world is awakening, not so much as a designer or a planner, but as the goal, not so much the governor of the universe, but as the goal. And the goal operates not by efficient causation, but by attraction, by luring. And I think our definition of God is self-giving love means that God is not a dictator, not a governor, but God is an attractor, a lure, and that means that in some sense God is in essence something infinitely beautiful to which the universe is aspiring, and to which the universe can be contributing uh, in different ways depending upon where you are in this awakening universe. And that, to me, gives a a new understanding of religion in general. Religion is how the universe awakens explicitly to what I call indestructible rightness, uh, which we call by many names in religion. And it gives me an understanding of Christian theology, which allows me to think of Christ as the Word of God inviting the universe after it has reached the stage of reflective self-consciousness to awaken in deeper faith and trust in this awakener. All right. So Christ is both the Word of God awakening the universe, but also the universe itself, that's the doctrine of the incarnation, enfleshed, God enfleshed in flesh and matter, awakening to the call And and that gives rise to a whole new understanding of what faith is and uh, Mm -hmm. what Christianity is. Right. So let me follow up on a couple of points there. I mean, you know, one of them
0: is that, uh, you know, really since David Hume and maybe even before that, uh, you know, philosophy, uh, I'll I'll say leading up to Darwin, uh, just chronologically, I don't want to make it too teleological, uh, was getting away from actually teleology, uh, and saying that, you know, the, uh, the old medieval Aristotelian philosophers, whether Muslim or Christian or Jewish, uh, were getting nature wrong when they said that it was progressing towards something. Um, to what extent is this a return to that medieval vision of God as uh, the one that draws all things to God's self? And to what extent is it something that is of a, a different genre?
1: Well, to, to respond to that question, and I, I don't know whether you want me to do it right now. I h- would like to lay out a typology of different ways of being transformed or, or uh, undergoing this uh, this growth. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I think there, there are three major figures in the past whose ghosts are still alive, and one of Democritus, the other is Plato, and the other is Abraham. And when I talk about our aspirations being a hybrid, I think all three of these enter into the souls of all of us. But the first I call the archaeonomic view, and that's another name for the materialist way of explaining the universe in terms of its constituent, inert, lifeless particles. So the archaeonomic approach is the analytical approach. Uh, I I invented this term archaeonomy to describe the way materialism has unfolded since Darwin and since geology and since cosmology, uh, contemporary cosmology. We now know, uh, and most scientists agree, that the universe is very old and that originally it was very, very simple. Uh, It existed as a kind of set of dispersed subatomic units. That's how everything started out. So the archaeonomic approach wants to make the universe, present universe, and the cosmic story intelligible by going all the way back to the beginning and grasping hold of how things were in archae, which is a Greek word for beginning, and grasping the namos, the laws, that came into existence then. So I call this the Archeonomic approach, because it, it believes that the laws of the universe were settled once and for all at the beginning. And it's those laws that determined how the original particles will come together in various arrangements. It's kind of like Democritus of old, except Democritus didn't know that the universe is a process that's still coming into being. But it's still this archaeonomic approach still accepts the democracy and ideal that to get a handle on the universe, you have to go back to the beginning. Uh, we can see some of this operative even in the tacit kind of motivations that led us to, to set up this field telescope uh, that would take us back as far as possible to the beginning. And most science wants to trace the series of connections back to some arcade, to some beginning. And that's, that's one way of understanding the universe. It's the most uh, uh, popular way in which the intellectual and academic world uh, is structured today. Every university in the world is archaeonomic. It's understanding of what is interesting to research, uh, what, what kind of instruments that we need to do so. All this is determined by a tacit conviction that somehow, by getting back to the beginning, we can make the world intelligible. Now, what I've argued in God after Einstein is that we don't find intelligibility at all. Yes, we find, as we go back, we find various stages of the story that have led to the present condition of matter. But if we try to go back to the beginning, we find nature falling increasingly apart into dispersed units, that is, into decoherence, into incoherence. And what intelligibility means is coherence. What is it that holds things together? And to find that out, we have to go, we have to leave the past and march forward figuratively from the past toward the present and from the present now toward the future. Because, I mean, who of us could have understood what a subatomic particle is until we waited to see what it can do when it joins up with other subatomic party, particles to become an atom? Who of us could have understood an atom if we had been present 300,000 years after the Big Bang when atom, hydrogen atoms were, were forming? And um, who of us could understand what's going on? If, if, if who of us could have predicted that out of that very inauspicious beginning would eventually come cells and animals and sentience and consciousness and the kind of discourse that we're involved in, you and I and your listeners right now, who of us could have predicted that? We would have had to wait patiently Uh, to see what the story is all about. So moving up to the present, how should we look upon the universe? Many people think that science has now settled once for all what the universe is about, and oftentimes this settlement consists of the belief that the universe is nothing but atoms and molecules rearranged in different configurations. That's the archeonomic approach to things. So, what if the the universe is still coming into being? This comes back to your first question, this is why I think it's such an important question. What, What should we be thinking about the universe and God and other things if the universe is still miles and miles, millions of miles, from having reached its future into the future. It's only when entities come together in different configurations that we see their coherence, their intelligibility. Science by definition, and it's perfectly okay for science to do this, looks for another kind of intelligibility. Uh, Einstein, for example, looked for geometric intelligibility in the cosmos. He didn't realize, and he refused to turn his eyes in this direction throughout most of his life. He didn't see the universe as a story, uh, as a drama, as a drama of awakening, even though his own mind was a perfect example of this awakening. He didn't connect his own internal mental awakening with the cosmos, but since Einstein Science has drawn a connection between our minds and the stars and the galaxies that never was seen before. And it was almost, we had to wait till the middle of the 20th century in order to have the physics that could allow us to see the connectedness between our own activities, especially our mental activities, but also our moral activities and I would say, even our religious activities and the kind of universe that would allow for this kind of fluorescence, this kind of awakening to occur. So that's why I keep coming back when I, the subtitle of my book is What's Really Going On in the Universe. I keep coming back to my belief that what's really going on, if you look beneath the geometric coherence, is that there's a narrative or dramatic process going on, and we look now to the future, because it's only in the future that we can expect to come close to the coherence uh, that we're looking for. So cosmology, to me, has, has shaped reshaped the whole point of theology, uh, mm-hmm. and as I say in the book, I, I think most modern theology is still I have still not caught up with cosmology, and and one
0: category of those uh, cosmologies uh, that you know you write about at some length is is called analogical cosmology. So, uh, how is it distinct from uh, archeonomic? And then you know from there, uh, how does the anticipatory cosmology, which is eventually is what you land on, as uh, most adequate to uh, Christian confession. Uh, how does
1: it how does it differ from the, from the other two? Yeah, the, the, first, the analogical approach has been around for centuries, and we see the ghost of Plato, uh, even in present instances of that. But the analogical pro- approach is the approach taken by most Christian theology, even today. And the way in which it settles the question, or tries to settle the question, how to make the universe intelligible, it sees... Natural objects, or all objects, all things that are are present in time, uh, as pointing to one degree of intensity or another to a perfection that exists only in the mind of the eternal now that we call God, the eternal present, which is the source and destiny of all being in the analogical approach. But the analogical approach. Arose long before we had a sense that the universe itself is still coming into being. And uh, most people still don't have, most Christians, uh, it goes without saying, still don't have a strong sense of a cosmos that's still coming into being. For most Christians, the cosmos is a reflection. For Catholics, for example, the universe is a sacramental or symbolic set. of of beautiful things that point us in the direction of an infinite beauty. So it's a beautiful vision, the analogical vision, uh, but it's innocent of time. In fact, analogy, the analogical approach makes timelessness the ideal. Why? Because we know that existing in time leads to perishing eventually, to erosion, to corrosiveness, to all sorts of things that we, which we don't like. And so it's understandable that our religions would try to point to a kind of salvation that lifts us out of time. And since we, we can't be fully uh, initiated into the realm of timelessness till after death, the immortal soul right now has to look for uh, look into nature for things that point us toward and give us optimism that our destiny lies in a complete communion with timelessness. And so right now, as Plato pointed out, the way you can uh, get sort of in touch with that is by way of contemplation or by way of an asceticism, a a moral discipline, which uh, keeps the senses and the flesh in line so that our souls will be able to be detached eventually from the material world altogether. I'm not saying that every version of the analogical vision is so otherworldly, but in general, what the analogical what distinguishes the analogical view from my view, uh, or what has come to be my view, which I call the anticipatory view, is that the analogical view has little use for time. Uh, Time um, is something we want to get away from. And we find this happening throughout the history of religion. There are all sorts of ways in which people try to uh, escape from time. And early Christianity had the same temptations in its Christologies. It found it very difficult to think of God as being touched by time or to think of God as incarnate in time because wouldn't that imply that there's no basis for salvation from time? If God unites the divine self so intimately to time, as the Nicene Creed says God does, if God loves time so much, can time be redeemed from the corrosiveness of timelessness? So, the analogical view doesn't answer that question satisfactorily. So, that's why i I think we have room for an alternative point of view, which is more Abrahamic, which looks not for escape from time, but for the fulfillment of time. <clears throat> and it it, it, it it does not advocate <clears throat> that we try to depart from our responsibilities in time, but that we enjoy them and that we seek to enhance them. Uh, And that gives a dignity to our lives, that we can enhance our own situation by becoming more. Uh, There's no room for becoming more in either the archaeonomic or the analogical view. For them, the universe was complete for archaeotomy in the beginning, and for the analogical view, the universe or reality or being was complete in eternity. So, to get in touch with that completeness, we have to leave time behind. But the anticipatory—I consider it the main biblical impulse—is not to escape from time, but to look at the promise. And that's the fundamental idea that's left out of so much theology, and yet it's the fundamental motif in biblical religion that the universe is seeded not so much with a plan, as with a promise of a new future, promise of new creation, not a promise of escape from time, but promise of the fulfillment of time. And after Christianity emerged, it got caught up with a kind of worldview or set of worldviews that made it seem that the authentic Christian life means detachment from time. I felt this when I was in a seminary. And one of the things that allowed me to leave the seminary behind was that I started reading the works of a French Jesuit Catholic priest, who was also a geologist and an evolutionist, and who was also becoming familiar with Einstein's cosmology. His name was Teilhard de Chardin. T E I L H A R D. You'll find it everywhere, and it was through him. That I learned to think of my life as a Christian as not necessarily having to escape from time, but to contribute to the fulfillment of time. It's from him that I got the uh, advice that I should never forget, uh, no matter what I'm doing, the idea that the universe is still aborning. The universe is still coming into being. And if it's still coming into being, then that inevitably turns our attention toward the future of creation, and not a future apart from creation. And uh, it doesn't make life any easier. In fact, it makes life more challenging. But it has a kind of depth of hope, I believe, that we don't find either in the analogical optimism, I call it the analogical captivity of Christianity that started centuries ago. And instead, it's more deliberately Abrahamic. Uh, Abraham stands for the religious sense that something big is happening up ahead. And what I've learned to do is to translate that from the Bible's notion of the kingdom of God that's coming that Jesus came into his public ministry proclaiming that the universe, that something really big is happening, I, I began to conflate that with or interlace it with uh, the, the contemporary evolutionary sense that the universe itself is still in the process of bringing about something more. And so I believe that unlike the analogical and archaenomic kinds of Uh, understanding of the universe, the anticipatory interpretation, by definition, uh, accepts the idea that the universe is still awakening. It's awakening to a future, which is coming from up ahead, and which we can grasp through what I consider to be the true faith of the Bible. And that's its sense that everything is shaped by promise. Uh, rather than by uh, design or plan. All right. Let, let me ask uh, one question of distinction
0: here. Um, you know, one of the things that you do write about when you talk about anticipatory uh, cosmology and theology uh, is that with the emergence of mind and with the, with the emergence of consciousness, yeah. uh, that, you know, a new longing for indestructible things uh, comes into the picture. When I was reading that, I'll confess that sounded a little bit, um, you know, analogical. It sounded a little bit platonic. Uh, I, I want to give have... you a chance, though, to to distinguish those two for our listeners.
1: Yeah, thank you. Uh, uh, yes, I, I I think it's it's very difficult for most people who have been trained in the analogical kind of Christianity uh, to uh, to uh, understand that their salvation that their liberation from evil, so forth, would somehow still involve the coming into being of the universe. But here's where the element of patience and waiting are so important. Uh, I believe that the biblical instinct, the Abrahamic instinct, is to keep us grounded in time. the, the ancient Israelites didn't even have a clear sense of the survival of souls beyond death. They had a collective sense something big is happening, and that our lives can still be meaningful if we accept the promise of this future, which we may not personally enjoy, because uh, there is only Sheol for the dead, and not what we can cons- consider in in an analogical Christianity uh, place of timelessness, where the soul eventually uh, comes to complete at homeness uh, with itself and with God. Um, What science, first geology, uh, which discovered that the earth has a history. And then in the 19th century, Darwinian evolutionary biology, which unfroze life and saw life as having a tremendously intricate history going way back for millions of years. Something that's been enhanced to 3.8 billion years by contemporary evolutionary thinking. And then cosmology, which uh, takes the whole universe as as its main interest. Where is the universe going? So what that did for me, and perhaps it won't do it for you or for other people, it made the fundamental question of theology, not that of whether design points to deity, which is how previous theology that you're talking about looked for God. It saw the footprints of God or the the impression of God in the intricate uh, designs that exist in life. William Paley's book, Natural Theology, which Darwin himself had devoured. Um, that's, that's one way of understanding theology. But what I've tried to do is say that the theology task today, in the light of subsequent science, and especially Einstein, the, the problem is not so much where the design points to deity, which the intelligent design community has made a lot of, and which the new atheists, by the way, understand to be the only legitimate form of theology. <laughs> the question- well, the, the new
0: yeah. atheists are far too illiterate for me to take entirely seriously. But
1: keep rolling, okay. keep rolling. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Dawkins, for example.
0: <laughs> oh man, yeah, I, I, yeah, that could be a, a whole side conversation. But I'll resist. I'll resist. <laughs>
1: So I'd have the same thing to say to him as, as to, to the creationist intelligent design community. The problem is not whether design points to deity, it's whether the whole cosmic story of which the story of life is part has a meaning. Uh, that to me is the most interesting theological question. And I think already there are indications that it does, that it's a good story, that it's not just sound and fury signify nothing, because what has already happened is that the universe has chapter by chapter been gradually awakening, first to life, especially to life, but first before that to a matter, to a material composition that was ready to receive the coming of life into the warp and woof of things in the universe. And then after life, there's this fascinating process of complexification, which is where the drama mostly lies, this drama of complexification. And then more recently in the awakening to consciousness and to a consciousness, which in you and me and many others now aspires to an indestructibility that lies not so much up above, but up ahead. And so I've come to think of God, not so much as absolute timelessness, but as the absolute future. And I've been influenced uh, in thinking that way, not only by Teilhard, who says that the universe rests on the future as its foundation, uh, and who rejects the analogical view, where the universe is suspended by eternity and rejects also the archealamic view, which turns the world into incoherence the farther back you go. The world becomes coherent and intelligible only as, as it unfolds toward the future. And what happens in that process is that complexification becomes tighter and tighter. And there's a law That you find in nature of complexity consciousness, that consciousness increases in terrestrial living history in direct proportion to the increase in physiological complexity. So that thought requires the convolutions of the brain and nervous system uh, to, to be white hot in its complexity and its intensity before the thought can leap forth. So, but after that thought leaps forth, uh, it doesn't have to be understood as being saved from time, but as being part of the drama of the universe becoming increasingly awakened. And this is where religion comes in. Uh, Religion, especially for Teilhard, who's a Christian, the evolutionary significance of Christian faith and religious faith more generally is to promote the further complexification of the universe by adopting the, the metaphysics of relationality, that the universe becomes more, to come back to my point I made earlier, the universe becomes more only to the extent that it's becomes more intricately relational. And now that it has reached the stage of humans, the only way the universe through the earth will continue its awakening fully is if we find some way to bond with one another. And for that that means it's only the Christian imperative that we must selflessly love one another that can lead to the further awakening of the cosmos otherwise the universe will fall apart again into fragments we experience on earth and earth history today as much as ever the tendency of things to fall apart mm-hmm. uh, you know, i, I want to branch off
0: on that for a moment because uh at one point you do claim that quote moral wrongness consists of destructive acts and omissions that run contrary to the ongoing awakening awakening of the universe. End quote. So, I mean, here's my worry when I read something like that. Uh, modern history and modern literature alike don't have any shortage of personalities who view themselves as the universe's next evolutionary step. Whether we're talking about Raskolnikov and Dostoevsky, or I could name uh, some names.
1: <laughs> what what now? I could name some names too, but
0: I won't. oh sure. I mean, you know, Heinrich. Uh, Faust from Goethe, uh, Hegel's ad- admonition not to hold Caesar to schoolboy morality. Yeah. Um, how does the how does your sort of awakening ethics differ from the uber mensch that's crossing the
1: rope that is just plain mensch? Yeah, and writers like Dostoevsky were very sensitive to this uh, possibility, uh, and it has led uh, some very upright people. Uh, to question any kind of progress, because it, it's definitely going to be non-inclusive. So the problem with these visionaries, and there have been no end of visionaries, who have, in a sense, co-opted the universe's impulse toward the future, toward the sense, a sense of the really real lies up ahead, who co-opted it but narrated because of what I call early the sin of impatience of evil uh, in this world that I'm talking about, in this awakening universe, takes the form of our idolatrous identification of the end and destiny of all things with a particular historically conditioned sense of what the universe is all about. And that leads to all sorts of evils, uh, evils upon evils. So it, again, um, it, it, the kind of moral life, the kind of authentic religious life that would correspond to my notion of an awakening universe would be one that promotes the inclusiveness of, of the universe, uh, which is to implement the teaching of Jesus, to include the marginalized, the lost, the sinners, and so forth. There's no destiny without that inclusiveness. Uh, I want to appropriate that ethic into my notion of an awakening universe. But I also want to appropriate those aspirations of great thinkers in the past, whether Buddha or, or Jesus, that something big is coming. When Jesus came into his public ministry, his first words were not uh, to give a code of morality or to say, uh, to give a list of do's and don'ts. His first announcement was, the kingdom is coming, wake up. Metanoia means awakening, kind of awakening to something big coming. I don't want to lose that sense that something big could be coming from up ahead. And I want my cosmology to be animated By this sensitivity to the coming of something big up ahead, but I want it also to be chastened by the ethic of patience that only those who wait will not be put to shame. So the biblical sense of hope is it's not just aspiring to things that appeal to our wishing. Uh, It's very difficult to maintain a life of hope because it has to be inclusive. And the future is inauthentic. That doesn't include the poor, the marginalized, those who are beset by injustice and so forth. So I I think my approach is biblical. Um, Mm. And and in a sense, more biblical than the analogical view uh, to which many theologians today are trying to turn us and to turn Christian thought uh, back to an Augustinian or Neoplatonic way of understanding things. Uh, I, I can appreciate that, and I and I deeply respect the brilliance of uh, radical Orthodox theology, and uh, for example, the work of David Bentley Hart and others. Uh, but I think it's still captive to the analogical sense of things, which to me is not hopeful enough uh, to satisfy my biblical instincts. All right. I want to turn to them for a moment, because I think that Augustine
0: and David Bentley Hart and John Milbank and Dante, for that matter, um, share a cosmology that doesn't fit neatly into the analogical category, simply because all of them uh, have an apocalyptic uh, element to them. Uh, They expect not that uh, matter will simply pass into eternity, but rather that the Material and energetic world will be gloriously renewed and restored not by simple passage of time but by a transforming act of God. So, their visions of things, like I said, don't seem to fit precisely with a Platonic or Neoplatonic analogical vision, but they've got elements of that and they've got elements of something like an anticipatory model. Um, talk to our listeners a little bit about that. I mean, where does that? apocalyptic character of the New Testament of Dante of Christian theology how does it relate to your project here
1: well um that's a very insightful question and I'm not sure that I have a good answer to it but what I I've I don't
0: noticed, either don't worry
1: <laughs> what, what I've noticed and what bothers me about that kind of theology I've read a, a good bit of it but not all of it is that how seldom if ever, it 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 says anything about cosmology as it's being taught today by temporary science. It's not informed scientifically. Uh, and I think that's a it's a drawback because it fails to take into account aspects of creation that we can only learn about by becoming scientifically literate to some degree. And uh, I think it's it's I I agree with them that in the, I, that maybe the final in the final analysis uh it is the goodness and great graciousness of God that will redeem the universe. But here's the thing about evolution and it's Teilhard and, uh, and um, Kingsley and Tennant and other theologians have pointed out. um, The thing about evolution is not that God makes things, but that God makes things that make themselves. And that kind of creator is much more impressive than is one who intervenes magically uh, in the universe. And I have enough trust in that way of thinking that the creator, uh, the only hands that God has uh, to create things are our own. Uh, And we should appropriate that as part of our sense of human dignity. And I have to agree with certain modern atheists who turned away from Christianity. Uh, because, as Nietzsche put it, what can humans create if God is the creator? In other words, how can we accept our own limited creativity uh, without becoming affected by hubris that you pointed out early, or earlier? I think it requires, the, again, the virtue of patience, but also the gr- gratitude. To accept our role in the scheme of things as being able collectively, not by ourselves, but collectively, uh, to bring something beautiful about. That's the ideal of the kingdom. Um, to me, that's essential to Christianity. When we say our Father, thy kingdom comedy, the word our is, is is absolutely indispensable here. Uh the, your kingdom, your ideal of what the universe can become. Let that be done, uh, as it were. So as long as we approach our lives prayerfully, we can situate ourselves uh, more fully within the creative process than I see happening in Augustinian uh, theology. Um, Again, maybe I'm wrong about that, uh, but I think that uh, the Bible itself promotes a very positive kind of uh, ethic in which we allow the future, not the hereafter, but the future to grasp hold of us. Uh, and that's why I've come to think of God as absolute future and to, and to think of revelation in, in terms of Wolfhart Pannenberg. who was familiar with apocalyptic literature. Uh, revelation is the arrival of the future. And, and uh, there's, another point that i haven't made yet but which i make in the book and it's it's a very sensitive point but one that i think we need to think about uh and Pannenberg makes this point as well and that's that that there's some sense in a processive universe which is still coming into being in which god too is not yet and I've thought a lot about what does that mean? How is that a religious idea? And the way in which I interpret the not yetness of God is to see it in terms of the divine kenosis, the divine self-sacrifice, the divine self-emptying, the divine humility, which in our very imperfect language somehow withdraws into the future. So, as to allow a universe to come into being and a universe with some endowed with some degree of autonomy, so that it can become something truly other uh, vis a vis the reality of God, and therefore take on a dialogical depth and dignity uh, in relation to God. That other forms of theology do not, in my view, allow for, but which I think we can make room for, uh, given the understanding of uh, the divine kenosis, and given the given the biblical notion of God as having future, as Holtmann and Ernst Block put it, as having future as God's very essence. a Point that picked up picked up by Teilhard in a completely independent way. That, the world rests on the future as its sole support. So the providence of God is not a plan. Uh, As Bergson uh, put it, the the world is much more and much better than a plan. Uh, So the whole idea of design and plan closes off the future because in advance it gives us the sense of the extremes to which creation can go, and that imprisons us, as Teilhard says. That kind of thinking clips the wings of hope, and to me, that's the problem with the analogical vision. In some sense, its emphasis emphasis on the eternal present of God closes off the future, and I think that some of the modern atheists have been sensitive to the way in which classical theism has made uh, God seem to be a limit, rather than a grace and and a liberator and a goal. So I think we're in the midst of a time in human history where we're still trying to figure these things out. And here I would make another point, uh, and that's the fact that we all, as our own discussion illustrates, are seeing through a glass darkly. There is an ambiguity, an unfinished character to both faith and theology. Why is that so? I think it, it ultimately is rooted in the fact that the universe is unfinished. So why would God, that's the question becomes, why would God create an unfinished universe? This is the question that the anticipatory approach causes all of us to ask. Um, and the answer I give would be very close to what I find in the writings of Teilhard de Chardin, and that's that a creator has no choice but to create an unfinished universe. Why? because a fully perfected creation would not be other than God. It would have no internal identity or autonomy. It would be an appendage to God rather than something dialogically related to God. So if God wants a world, a world that God can love, it has to be a world a reality that's other than God. And a completed creation would not have that otherness. And I think theology's gotten in a lot of trouble by explaining the imperfection in the universe as the consequence of an initial fault or fall. It's caused theology to be uh, a, a movement of uh, searching for culprits of scapegoating and of self. Like, I can't I can't talk here about the degree of self-hatred that that kind of theology that expiatory theology has introduced into biblical uh, faith and i think i can't i can't say exactly what but i think in a way the analogical approach actually legitimates that expiatory approach i in the book in my book god, god after einstein i talk about uh, with paul Ricard, the, the logic of equivalence that that operates uh, to enslave us humans, the idea that there's every game is zero-sum, that the scales have to balance the law of karma, where there has to be so much punishment, wherever there's so much uh, evil and so forth, that those ideas have punished us enough. This is why the evolutionary anticipatory universe ev- evades all those issues, and at the same time, allows God to be completely gracious uh, and uh, and completely loving. Um, and at the same time, creator of, of being the goal, by being the goal of the universe rather than uh, its governor. So those are just sure. a few thoughts that they're rambling around in my yeah. Unfinished odds. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But it's not my fault. It's God who made the unfinished universe. Uh, all the problems we which we deal with, uh, why we have to walk by faith, rather than by uh-huh. sight, uh, why we're struggling, why they're suffering so much. Some it all has to do to me, at least somehow, with the fact that the universe to be a universe has to be somehow uh, unfinished
0: uh, and open to the future. Well, very good. Well, John, I've been posing the questions for most of this conversation. And I have one more that I'd like to like to hear you answer uh, as we head for the door here. Uh, and that is, I mean you know as we think about uh, worshiping congregations, churches, uh, you know what kinds of concrete practices would you recommend so that the way that we learn about God, the way that we worship God, the way that we gather in the name of God can catch up some, Uh, with you know the the character of you know contemporary science and I'll let that kind of be your your last word today and then
1: when you're finished talking a bit about that we'll wrap up well let me let me give some advice not just to church people but to scientists part of the problem is we live in a culture of very poor science education combined with uh, poor religious education and so uh, that raises the question what should we do in science education and i think what scientists have to do and there are a few people some of them called big history people that we have to give our students from the time in grade school a sense that the cosmos is a story and that they're somehow part of that story we have to we have to develop a, what i am called the narrative understanding of nature people are captured by stories in a way that they're not necessarily captured by geometry. There are a few few people, like Einstein, who can see through to the beautiful geometry that underlies the universe, but to me this geometry is really a grammar and not a force. It's not the laws of physics, uh, but it's a grammar uh, that has to be inviolable If there's to be a cosmic story, we need to develop the idea of the cosmic story in our parishes, in our religious education and and so forth. And and to make that possible, I think we have to uh, uh, ask people to think about the possibility that something really big could be coming into the universe and that our present activity, our present lives can help make room. For that somehow, so that's that's the moral implications of the anticipatory approach, of and and, and what the 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 good life therefore would be, would be one that we, not, we wouldn't necessarily have to abandon the excruciatingly monotonous jobs that we that we're doing right now, but we can do them with a different kind of sensibility, a different kind of sense of their importance there has to be a kind of structure for the future to 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 step into in order to to come And, and so our lives can in many ways contribute to the birth of of that future and we can each look for ways in which we can contribute to that and that will place us very close i think or closer to the sensibilities of jesus what he was looking for from people is a reason to trust. And so what did he do? He went back to the fundamental biblical theme. There's a promise that embraces all of us, that embraces not just us, not just our souls, but embraces the whole cosmos. So enlarge your sense of the divine promise and give yourself a sense that there is something meaningful coming from up ahead. Uh, It might not happen to me personally, but I can live a satisfying life to the extent that I think I've contributed to a world which is making room for that for that coming. John Hutt, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist
0: Profiles. Thank you, Nathan. Appreciate it. Listeners, thank you for uh, downloading and listening in. The book is God After Einstein from Yale University Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.